Hi folks, Jack Spirgo here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again and getting close to one of the last times from Arlington, Texas before we move to our new place up in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas. I'm actually going up this week to sign a lease on an office space up there. We'll become the Survival Podcast Global Headquarters. We've had some interesting names on Facebook that people have thought of for the uh, Survival Podcast Headquarters office, including the Ant Hill, the Ant Farm, TSPN, and some other cool ones. Um, that's one reason to check us out on Facebook. We do kind of cool little things with the audience on Facebook from time to time. Anyway, um, due to that, I've um, doubled up this week on some shows, and uh, this is a pre-recorded show, even though I'm still down here today when I publish this. But this is Paul Wheaton uh, coming back on the show again today to talk about ways to completely eliminate irrigation. Notice I didn't say ways to provide irrigation creatively, but elimination of irrigation and still growing lots and lots and lots of food. Now, I'll tell you what, I, I can tell you that I don't think this will work all the time everywhere with every plant, but I think you're going to learn a lot of things today that will take one of the biggest expenses and energy inputs out of raising your own food. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about hugel culture, but a lot of other ways as well to eliminate irrigation or mitigate the need for irrigation. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is silverandgoldshop.com, the wonderful Mary Beth Made Month that offers some of the coolest and most innovative silver rounds I've ever seen. She also offers other silver and gold products. Check out silverandgoldshop.com. You're going to get first-class customer care from Mary Beth, including I've heard things like this. I placed my order in the morning. It didn't ship till the afternoon. The price of metal went down, so she adjusted my order down for me. I've never heard of anybody doing that in the silver and gold industry, ever. I, 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 I'm actually blown away that she does it because the time it would take to do something like that and the complications just don't even, you know, don't seem to really make it worth it other than she believes the customer's worth that much. That's the kind of person you're doing business with when you do business with Mary Beth at silverandgoldshop.com. Next up today is Chef Keith Snow with harvesteating.com. Harvest Eating is a great website. Chef Keith's a great chef. If you want to learn how to cook all the cool stuff that we talk about growing in your backyard. You know, a lot of people uh, are, are getting into this gardening thing and realizing, hey, early in the season, I can grow cool stuff like kohlrabi and kale. And then they grow it, and they look at it, and they go, what the heck do I do with it now? You know, we grow some really interesting things if we, uh, you know, if you guys are growing the stuff I talk about on the show, some of it you may have never heard of before. Some of it maybe you have, but you're used to buying it pre-prepared. Or some of it, you know, you, how do I cook it with just what's available at this time of the year when I'm being self-sufficient? Chef Keith can help you answer all of those questions. Uh, he puts together some great videos, some great a great membership program. Check out HarvestEating.com to learn how to cook with all that great seasonal vegetables and uh, meats as well that you're getting from your local producers or growing in your own backyard. 
Um, also want to kind of throw out a reminder, you know, we do have a sister site, SaveOurSkills.com, run by the, uh, the awesome Nick Ledoux. He's got a great podcast over there, and we're looking for contributing authors, either of, of articles, uh, of content on YouTube, of anything you think would be a good way to help others learn about preserving a skill. Get in touch with Nick. You can email him directly at Nick at SaveOurSkills.com. Check out SaveOurSkills.com to get a feel for what he's doing over there. And uh, you guys that are really big in our forum, if you've had a post that's like an awesome forum, Forum post that's gotten tons of responses on a project you've done. Contact Nick about that. We can convert that to an article and get it up on Save Our Skills. That was the original uh, concept behind the site in the first place, anyway. So check that site out. Uh, also check out our gear shop. We got a lot of great stuff. A lot of the stuff that's been out of stock is starting to come back into stock. Sis uh, Wolf and TW have got some things on order to get some more stuff back in, but there's some cool stuff now there. So check out the TSP Gear Shop, and you can find that and all of these other resources. You'll find links to them at the survivalpodcast.com last but not least remember there's a sale going on for the MSB discount code is 1022-1022 like the Ruger 1022 due to something I screwed up or the system screwed up I'm not sure which but I'm taking responsibility for it I've extended that sale through the end of today uh, that'll get your first year of the member support brigade for 30 bucks again the discount code is 1022 it will expire at midnight tonight and it's going away I won't be putting this on the blog or anything else like that alright folks as I said During the introduction segment, we're fortunate to have uh, the return of one of our most popular guests, Paul Wheaton, who is uh, kind of a guru of all things permaculture, coming to us from the wilds of Montana today. And uh, we're going to talk all about irrigation, or actually, as Paul would put it, the lack of the need for irrigation if you do things right and smart. Paul, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Uh, thanks, Jack. And you're calling me a guru. You make me sound so cool. Well, that's my job, man. I got to make you sound cool. You know, well, who else is going to do it if I don't? <laughs> Seriously, man, you really have been one of our top guests, and we've had you on kind of the general broad spectrum shotgun approach. We had you come back on and talk about Wafati Eco Buildings, and today we want to talk about irrigation. And um, well, I was talking to you about this before. What you actually said to me is. Uh, you kind of usually start out these types of presentations by talking about the imaginary birth of irrigation. Could you maybe say a little bit for us on that? <laughs> well, okay, so by imaginary, I mean this is what happens in my head. And, uh, and so, you know, what, do I, what I imagine is that uh, 10,000 years ago, um, people started getting the idea of rather than wandering off into the woods and finding food to eat and bringing it back, They, they started to plant the seeds near their home. And, uh, and then eventually these little plants would pop up and they would do fine for a couple of years. And then after a while, uh, they wouldn't do so good. And, um, uh, and it's because, of course, the soil is getting depleted as time passes. Um, and so then this, this, the plant would get to a point where it would look sad. It would be like, you know, clearly thirsty. So then, uh, um, the, the, the person would think, I know just what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a bucket down to the creek and bring it back and give it water. So that's the birth of irrigation. Now, of course, uh, once you start watering it, then there's all kinds of problems that come with it. And then, and then permaculture is going to be more like, well, how did that plant get on without irrigation for so long? And, uh, um, and, and now when that person's irrigating it, then it seems to become more and more dependent on the irrigation. So permaculture is all about how can we get so well aligned with nature? How can we grow our things so well aligned with nature that we don't have to do the irrigation stuff? So that's 
that's a big part of where I'm thinking about it. Uh, when, I mean, if nothing else, consider when you irrigate, there is often the expense of the materials used to, to transfer the water, whether it's a bucket or a hose or a bunch of irrigation pipe or, or, or an entire plumbing system. A lot of, a lot of people go to a lot of trouble to introduce, uh, water in an area so that they can, you know, connect up their hoses and their pipes and whatnot to irrigate. Then there's oftentimes the expense of just getting the water there, it, whether it's coming out of a city tap or whether it's coming out of, you know, out of the ground. You're pumping it out of the ground through all the pipes to get it out there to irrigate it. And then, uh, or another one that people are doing now is they're doing water uh, capture systems. They're they're getting these barrels, and I'm, I, I hope I don't piss off a whole bunch of your listeners by saying this, but every time I hear somebody saying, "Oh, I went and got a barrel," isn't that awesome? Isn't that permaculture? I kind of think, "No, it it ain't." I I, I kind of think of that as like, well, you just went and dropped, you know, anywhere from fifty bucks to five hundred bucks to capture water from your roof. Which in in many states is illegal. You're not allowed to capture water. Which, by the way, in defense of people doing it, I think that's asinine to tell me I can't capture the water off my roof if I want to. Uh, really, kind of strikes sideways of the libertarian to me. But I get what you're saying. I mean, I was talking to somebody about your your approach to this recently. I said, but you know, obviously, if it never rained, a plant wouldn't grow, and all I'm doing is supplementing the rain. And I, I'm kind of interested in what, you know, it's the first time I ever thought about this from your angle and then from this person's angle. I said, well, when we water something um, with, with a hose or with a soaker hose or with anything, I'm creating this little pocket of moisture surrounded by all this dry earth, and you wonder why it takes so much. Well, all of that dry earth just kind of wicks it away. It's not, it's not anything close to what happens when it rains. I'm actually flushing nutrients out of one location into the other locations where I don't really need them to be right now. And that's going to depend entirely on the kind of soil that you have, the kind of subsoil you have, the different layers of soil down below. I mean, it's because for a lot of places, you'll just you'll go and you'll water it, and it just rinses all the nutrients, all the organic matter, all the yumminess of the soil down uh, to where your plant can't reach it, or even worse, into your drinking water. Where you probably don't want it, it'll make your water taste funny. And then in some places, the other thing it does is it leaves behind the one thing we don't want, which is salt. And I mean, that's a huge problem they have in Australia right now. They water, 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 and they end up with salted earth. And I don't know if you've ever tried to grow a plant in a pile of salt, but it doesn't work really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, and, and, I, and I think that the salted, uh, the salt stuff comes from a, a different way, but. You know, for for most folks in the U.S., which I assume is most of your audience anyway, I I think that one of the most important things to think about when you're out there watering is is you know take a take a patch of raspberries and and um, abuse the hell out of it, hardly ever water it, and take another patch of raspberries and water it gobs and gobs, and now taste the raspberries. You'll you'll find that the raspberries have been watered taste like water. There's like hardly any flavor to it. Whereas the raspberries that you've totally abused have fantastic flavor. They're like more flavor flavorful than anything you can buy in the store, more flavorful than possibly anything you've ever tasted before. And this is true for nearly everything. And uh, uh but it's like, you know, most people are like raising food because they like the f- better flavor of it. And and they're doing just the, the the right things to make it so that the food has basically no flavor. I mean, and there's precedent for this. If you talk to somebody that that makes great wines, 
they're not going to be the person that you know irrigates the hell out of their vineyard. If you want the complexity in a wine, they always say you have to allow the vines to struggle somewhat. So I guess that makes sense when we move in other foods. And I remember, like as a kid growing up, we used to go pick wild blueberries. And I remember the first time somebody handed me some blueberries that came from a store. I'd never seen one before. And they were huge, like a size of a grape. And I thought this is awesome. And then I ate it. I said, "That's not a blueberry. That doesn't taste anything like a blueberry." Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I've got a video up on YouTube where um, I visit this guy in uh, in Bellingham where he's got the soil that's three feet deep. And uh, as as and I start the video by tasting his blueberries, and he's got these amazing, awesome blueberries. And then he proceeds to say that <clears throat> this area <clears throat> he has not watered at all that year. And and we're we're videoing in August. And, and I said, well, like what? Does it, does it rain a lot here or something? He says, we haven't had any noticeable rain for over two months. And so he's already gone two months without any rain and, you know, the blueberries are awesome. And then I, I proceed to video more of what he's growing in this area. And, and it's like I, we approach the squash plants and, and the leaves on every, on all these squash plants are all perfect. Whereas on this particular trip, I'd already visited a bunch of different farms and gardens. And the squash plants all looked miserable and pathetic. So, but but usually those were being watered, and it was it's the watering that actually was causing the problems, in my opinion. Uh, you know, getting mildew on the leaves and things like that, and attracting other bugs. But anyway. <clears throat> but you were telling me earlier that I mean, part of the problem is that we have gotten one dimensional with this. We look at you know <laughs> irrigation, and we say, okay, well, I'm going to provide water for the plant, and we do that pretty much in one way. It doesn't matter if it's from a rain barrel or from a garden hose or from drip irrigation or whatever. We take water to the plant, we just put it there, and we go, okay, drink. But plants, as you say in the wild, have many ways they get their water. Oh, absolutely. I, I and I've uh, I, I I sat down. And it was like about a year and a half ago where somebody asked me a question during a presentation, and I sat there and I came up with seven ways off the top of my head, and then I thought, you know, this would be a good presentation on its own. So I, I whipped up a presentation, and as I sat there and thought about it, I think I came up with 14 ways, and I'm, I'm looking at this list now, and, and I think a little later in your show we're going to cover that whole list of, of all these different ways. But, but yeah, it's, I mean, basically it's like uh, uh, tomato plants. I mean, they're, they're the, the, the quintessential um, uh, plant for everybody's garden, it's it's like the iconic plant, and so let's you know how did those tomato plants get by for thousands of years before we showed up? You know, um, uh, you know, don't don't they know that we're here to help them? Uh, and then uh, uh, and and the other thing is is they have the audacity to to grow in a desert. They have the audacity to be from a desert. They you know uh, in fact uh, uh, one of my favorite cherry tomato plants is Matt's wild cherry which is a, a, a variety of cherry tomato that was recently discovered um, in, in Mexico. And it was it was not in an oasis or anything like that. It's out, out in this dry space. But I guess, I mean, the other side of that is that tomato doesn't grow all by itself with nothing but tomatoes in a perfectly manicured space, full exposure to the sun at all times, the, growing on, in a cage uh, held up with twisty ties. That's not how that thing grows in, in the wild, is it? Absolutely. Correct. And there's sure as hell nobody with a hose over there watering it out in the middle of the desert.
So, so how how does it how does it get by in the desert? Because I mean, I, I'm going to tell you right now. I, even me, right? And I love you, and I, I'm a little bit skeptical because, like, I grew tomatoes in, in Pennsylvania as a kid, and we very rarely watered. We had great soil. We took good care of it. I had a lot of uh, diversity going on. I was some level of permaculture. I didn't even know what the word meant at the time. I was just a kid, and, and it worked there. But pulling this off in Texas when it's 111 degrees. Seems a little bit more complex. So, how does that? How does one relate to the other? How do we get there from here, so to speak? Well, um, and okay, and in that particular example, let's consider that you know what was growing next to it, what was nearby. Was it on? Um, was it near a rock? And and uh, was it near a bunch of rocks? And what were those rocks doing for it? Uh, and and so uh, was it uh, in a shady spot? Was it, uh, you know, how exposed was it? Was it in a spot where soil may have accumulated and, and you know, got to be a little bit deeper? And, uh, um, you know, so it would be good to, to explore all of these things. But the other thing is, is that uh, I, I think when it comes to tomato, one of the things that I think is really important is, did that tomato start from seed or did somebody go out there and transplant it? Because whenever you transplant any plant, it has transplant shock. And this is why I love to, to bring in the tomato, because the tomato um, is the, the, the one that will tolerate, is a plant that will tolerate transplant shock really well. It may be for all the, the standard garden plants that we're aware of, it's the one that tolerates transplanting better than, I believe, any other of, of the standard garden plants. And yet it still has the transplant shock. So it'll be set back for a week or two, maybe three, um, once it's been transplanted. So, um, um, and then its root system is going to be, um, not as massive and as robust as it would have been. Now, uh, uh, I have, you know, this is a great question I ask a lot of my presentations, especially when I'm giving this presentation, is I'll ask the audience, okay, who here has had a volunteer tomato just show up like a weed somewhere out in their garden and they decided to like let it go? And then, uh, and then you go out and you transplant your tomatoes, usually after the volunteers show up. And, um, uh, and so now your volunteer is about the same size as your transplant. And, um, and so now throughout the season, which plant does better? Now, um, up until recently, uh, the only answer I ever heard is that the volunteers uh, not only did better, like as a bigger plant, than the transplant, but they also produced more fruit than the the transplant. And then recently, somebody said that the transplant. One of my presentations, somebody said that the transplant didn't do as well. And I, I you know, and I want to, you know, go and grill that person some more and find out. Okay, what'd you do? <laughs> Why is that? But uh, here's another thing, too. When you water a plant, like let's say you go out there and you decide you're going to water it every day or water it every other day or whatever it is you're going to do, then uh, what kind of root structure does it build for itself? Is it, you know, and, and uh, to answer my own question. <laughs> I'll do that for you. It's very shallow. Very shallow, very lame, wimpy. It's all close to the surface where the water is. and it's, it, You're making a very lazy plant. And then you stop watering, and it doesn't have a deep, rich root system, and and then it goes all sad on you. Oh, help me, I'm thirsty. So uh, you, you, now you have to go out there and keep watering it, or else it'll it'll really suffer. 
So um, uh, that's a big part of it. If you never water it, then it puts out these roots down and down and down and down and down, and it finds more and more stuff. Now, of course, if your soil is like a bunch of gravel, okay, yeah, you know, no, that a tomato is not going to make it there. I mean, this is a another big part of permaculture is edge. You're going to have like if you've got like 80 acres, you've got like um, a, a thousand different kinds of edge going on. And if you scatter the whole place with tomato seeds, there's maybe one percent of your whole property that's going to um, perhaps be able to sustain tomatoes. But yeah. guess what? That's where you grow your freaking tomatoes, right? You grow them where the environment is right for them. So instead of trying to force the tomatoes into the four foot by eight foot rectangle that happens to be where I want it, I find the place that's conducive to the tomatoes growth. Well, either you find the place that's conducive or you provide the place that's conducive. I create it. So, I, so it's up to me. If I want it there, I got to create the environment. So the thing that, you know, the way that you found out that I exist on this planet is that you found my, my Hoogle culture videos on YouTube. That's correct. And, Very and first so, exposure to you. So then when I try to talk to people about this, because, of course, usually the first reaction is I say, I can grow tomatoes all year, all summer long, without any irrigation. And their first response is, is no, you can't. You're a lying bastard. I hate you. Go away. And and so then Hoogle culture is like the simplest thing that you can you can present to somebody so that they'll then change their mind. Okay, I guess you're not so crazy. And okay, I can see how that can work. And and so that's like one tool. And, and you know what? It is so good. Hugo culture is such an amazing thing that if you want to take the time and expense and whatever else to to do it, you could just have that be your magic bullet. Just do that and everything else falls into place. Everything else will be fine. You just have to do the one thing and you'll be great. Um <clears throat> but that's, you know, but but coming back to what you said earlier, there's there's like really about 14 things that I can think of. There's probably 50 things that nature does, many of which I'm not yet aware of. But there's 14 that I can think of. And hugo culture would be right up. I mean, in, in nature, we call them nurse trees. You know, so a tree falls over and dies and rots, and then stuff grows next to it, and then and then that big huge rotting log is holding water from all winter. And it's also collected nutrients, and so then plants continue to get water and nutrients from it throughout the summer, even though it hasn't been raining lately. Absolutely. And as a a guy that grew up hunting and fishing in in the woods of Pennsylvania all the time, I can tell you that I came across that all the freaking time. And then when you hear about something like hula culture, you almost look at it and go, well, stupid, why didn't you think of that? Because it just seems like, duh, there it is right in front of you. And I guess, you know, we go back to to Lawton and Molson telling us the forest is the teacher but I guess we have to actually pay attention and learn. Well, I think um, almost everything in permaculture has a great big duh, you know, on it. <clears throat> um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how the the videos, especially the videos that I put out, how uh, um, people, I'll, I'll encounter people and they will say that things are absolutely this one way and there is no possibility for the other way. And then they watch the video which shows them another way. And then they're like, well, duh, it's always been that way. There's nothing special about this video. And then I just kind of snicker to myself and think, yeah, there's nothing special about this video except that a moment ago you were saying that there is no other way. You know, and, and so it's, it's kind of like, a, a, I don't know, I feel like we're moving forward 
in a, in a big way by making these little stupid videos that just expose these points that are obvious to people, but that they kind of seem to have forgotten. Oh, I completely like, agree, because I think when a person looks at that, right, then the first thing they say, you know, is, ah, and they kind of poo-poo it, because they're uncomfortable. And I, we just did a lot of stuff on survival about how when you break the comfort bubble, people try to, like, minimize it. But that kind of made plants a seed, and people start to question other things and go, well, if there's more than one way to do this, right, then maybe there's more than one way to do everything. And I, I guess I'm like the complete opposite of the average person because everything I look at, I'm like, how can I improve it? How can I make it better? How can I do it different? Even if I change it and it breaks it, then, okay, well, that, that was a bad idea. Now let's try something else. And, and I think that your videos are doing that for a lot of people. They're making them finally say, hey, maybe there's maybe there's something more to this than four foot by eight foot beds, growing plants in a straight line, um, buying my plants from a nursery, transplanting them at the two weeks after the last frost date, uh, watering them every day and waiting for summer to eat this stuff. Right. I, and I think, I think, you know, we're making progress in this space. I think, um, I mean, my impression is, when I look at at the forums at permies.com, then uh, I see tons and tons of people building Google culture beds now, and they're sharing pictures and they're sharing their results. And um, uh, in fact, I I went on this great big drive. I took four days of driving, and I, I ended up in Northern California, where there uh, there's a small uh, plot of land where people are doing a lot of the stuff that they've learned from permies. And, um, and, and from my articles and things like that. So basically, um, they've been doing all this stuff that we've been talking about. And I got plenty of video to be uploading, um, from, from, from their success stories and from their, the, the things that are working out well for them. And I hope to be able to go back there again in a year and get even more. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a matter of getting the word out, really. So, hey, we've kept people waiting long enough. Let's give them, what are these 14 ways that you have that plants get water in nature? Okay, um, uh, so normally when I'm giving the presentation, I, I talk about the evidence of the of the big names in permaculture who have proven this to be true. So so forgive me as I put off the 14 things for just a moment. Fair enough. And 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 I say, okay, let's let's talk about first of all, uh, Sepp Holter, the mighty, the glorious, the amazing Sepp Holter. Uh, he did a project in Spain where it's like desert. It's like three inches of rain a year. And there's two important things he did there. Um, uh, one is is that he brought back lakes. So here it is, sand and a few dying oak trees in this area. And he comes to the area and he says, there used to be lakes here. And people are saying, no, 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 no. So so he he did his thing and lakes returned to the area. So uh, the other thing is, is that there was these experimental garden beds. And you got to keep in mind that when he's doing this, there's like this... 20,000 acres it's owned by some princess of something or another and uh and she brought in like 20 different experts and gave each expert a plot of land and all these experts spend that are out that are not sepulcher are apparently spending their time going to sep's plot and bitching about how he's a dumb fuck and they're just like doing everything all wrong um and and so then they come and they complain and complain and complain and so um and it's like hey don't you have your own piece of land <laughs> piss off so <clears throat> he ended up doing this this garden bed experiment, and uh, and he did them both as Google culture. Only the, the the other people, the other nineteen guys, were all saying it'll never work. You have to irrigate it. So then he he did two, and they irrigated one and didn't irrigate the other one. They did you know. So uh, the first year they had equal crops off of both Google cultures, 
And then um, on the second year, uh, they, they decided to stop the irrigation on the other one because, you know, why irrigate if you have equal crops? So they uh, stopped the irrigation, and then the second one all died. Everything died because, of course, you know, it had the shallow, wimpy roots. It couldn't, it couldn't cope. So anyway, there's so those are two stories, and then uh, uh, then there's Sepp Holzer in Austria, where uh, he does he has uh, 110 acres or so, and he doesn't irrigate anything, and and so uh, and but but his he gets about 30 inches, I think 28 inches of of rain per year there, but it's of course all during the winter, uh, and and spring and fall when when you know things aren't growing so much, and then he'll have like. A summer of three months where it doesn't rain at all. So even though there's a lot of annual uh, rainfall, it's it's not coming when he needs it. When but he's got going. the ground saturated by then. Yeah, he's got a great big sponge. And there's I mean there's a lot more to tell about that story. But the key is is that there's lots of space on this mountainside where there's uh, you know it's far from any water and it's totally dry and he's raising tons of stuff. Uh, next up is Jeff Lawton. In Jordan, and so if you go to YouTube, uh, look up uh, "greening the desert" and uh, and and make sure that you also find part two. Uh, the story is just just spectacular. Um, uh, he goes to Jordan, and it's like I mean, you know, you look around; it's desert, 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 rocks and sand, and and it's like once in a while you could see some kind of piece of scrub growing somewhere. And so then he uh, he he does the he does the permaculture thing. And then you've got this video of seven years later. And so then apparently after he did his permaculture thing on that piece of property, then uh, uh, two years later, the people that owned that property sold it. And then uh, whoever bought it, they didn't know what was going on, but it was green, so they just turned the goats loose on it. And then those people sold it. So, so seven years later, it's been through the hands of a bunch of different people who have no idea what's going on. They just have this oasis out of nowhere for no you can't they can't imagine what the reason is so so in this video seven years later there's these trees that are like 30 feet tall and and brush and it's all green and lush all over the place whereas you know outside the property it's still this big desert of of nothing yeah because i watched that and basically the people that own it now kind of screwed a lot of it up they're running their their drip irrigation the wrong direction and all and they're letting the goats go nuts on it but a lot of it even with the abuse has survived and the place looks totally different And it's like this pot of green surrounded by desert and the way he described it is like the goats are like maggots eating you know the flesh off the land everywhere else right right oh yeah so, I mean, imagine what would happen if it was still, but the thing is, it looks crazy lush now, despite the abuse. And it's just, it just shows you how powerful permaculture can be. And, and again, you know, they, and they did have some forms of irrigation there, but then the, uh, the general recipe for permaculture in a desert area like that is that you're going to baby it for five years and then you're going to walk away and it's going to do great by itself. Uh, the next story uh, has to do with Willie Smits in Borneo, and there's a TED talk about about him. It's it's just like you know you wanna you wanna give this guy a crown, a big pedestal, give him some Nobel prizes. I mean, uh, you know, as as you watch this video, it's like they have to be like 18 minutes or something like that. It's just stunning what he can convey in in 18 minutes. But basically, it sounds like my 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 understanding from that and other things I've read around this <clears throat> is that 
in Borneo around 1900, we went in there and, and like, ooh, look, trees, let's cut them all down. And, and then the whole area kind of turned into a desert, uh, whereas it used to be a jungle. And uh, uh, so now it's a desert, and the water's all nasty, and everybody's, like, miserable and sad and everything. And whatever it was that they had planned apparently didn't work out. So the whole area is just devastated. And uh, and so then he comes in, and he starts doing the permaculture thing. And uh, they're getting trees to grow, and lushness is coming back. And it's like in three years, they've got trees that are, like, 20 feet tall, 25 feet tall. And um, uh, they've got water. They've got, I mean, everything's going great. They, and, and they've uh, the, they've measured. They've, I mean, they've got stuff. They're measuring all kinds of stuff all over this property. And because um, uh, it's a big part of it. It's a research project. And uh, rainfall on the third year is up 20% for the area. And um, and they go on about how they've effectively proved it's because they planted the trees there and because of this, this big tree growth there. Yeah, I'll tell you, if you don't think trees cause rain, you don't understand rain. I, I, I completely agree with that. I haven't seen the, uh, everything else you're talking about I've seen. I haven't seen this, so I'll have to look this up and provide a link in the show notes. Um, never heard of this guy. This sounds amazing what this guy's doing. It's, it's just stunning. 18 minutes just changes your life. Um, and then uh, uh, um, I've got two more. One's not on my uh, slides here. I've got to maybe update it. But, but uh, just real quick, um, there's a 30-minute animated thing that is fiction based on a true story called uh, The Man Who Planted Trees, a beautiful story, basically great big desert area in, uh, I believe, Spain. And um, uh, and then there's this guy who has just taken it upon himself. He, he calls it doing God's work. And he uh, he plants 100 tree seeds every day for his life and, and turns this area that's probably got to be 100 square miles into uh, lushness from desert. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. It's just really beautiful. Um, and then finally, uh, um, Bill Mollison himself in Australia. And, uh, this is, this is an, this is a great story because there's this little town in Australia where they hate Bill Mollison's guts. They can't say his name without spitting. Um, and, uh, uh, what happened was is that there was this time apparently like 20, 25 years ago where the town was uh, drying up, it was just a big desert area, and um, people were leaving, and there's hardly anybody left in the town, and somehow they worked a deal with Bill Mollison to come and, and green the place. So he came, and he greened it, and now it's like this, this lush, jungly oasis in the middle of the desert, and they hate his guts for it, because one of the plants that he planted was a thornless honey locust. And um, uh, apparently, uh, some of the uh, offspring of the because it's like it's a it's a it's a fluke, a genetic fluke, uh, a mutation that you have a honey locust that doesn't have thorns. So nature so, found its way back to thorns. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> the, the 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 seeds that came off of that plant, um, you know, had thorns, and uh, or at least you know most of them did. And so now, and I don't know if you know about a honey locust plant, but they have thorns that are like three inches long. Oh, I'm very and, familiar uh, with honey locusts. Yeah, they're they're uh, okay. they're interesting plants. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the farmers used to use those thorns as nails, and farmers know you never drive the tractor anywhere near the honey locust tree if you want to keep your tires intact. 
<laughs> so uh, uh, anyway, um, so yeah, they, they just, so that, there's there's my stories of the of the the big players, you know, uh, doing it. You know, it makes me think of another thing I remember seeing with Mollison in that Global Gardener series he did back in the '80s, and it was the Drylands one, and he was in the United States in the desert Southwest, uh, where during uh, the Great Depression with the Civilian Conservation Corps, Roosevelt sent these guys out in the desert to put these swales in. Now they didn't do it to grow stuff; they did it because it was basically washing the desert sands across the road and screwing up the road. And where they were irrigating to grow cotton for the war effort, it was you know washing out the cotton beds when it rained you know three times a year. So all they did was put these swales in to stop the water. Well, he's standing in the middle of the swale that was built in like 1934, right, and or 36 or whatever. No one's even been near it for almost 100 years now, say 80 years. And he digs down, and in the middle of the desert where everything's gravel and sand, there's soil. Now it's not it's not rich loam like you know uh, Iowa farmland, but it's real soil, and there's trees and bushes and for miles along the swale line. And no one ever did anything. Nobody even planted anything there. They just put the swales in and walked away. And, I, you know, if you can grow anything there, you should be able to grow something anywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, what a great demonstration. And, and I think, was it in that same video where they had something that was like a Colt's foot roller and um, and putting little indentations in the land? And yeah, all the guy did was drive and make pockmarks in the desert. <laughs> he just, it was like, it, it looked very much like a piece of equipment we used in Honduras when I was there building roads. Uh, except that it had this very specific design so that the marks it made in the ground were like these little funnels. And just the wind would blow, you know, you know, pack rat crap and, and, and all kinds of stuff and seeds would catch in the bottom. They, they watered nothing and you just looked at a place that two years ago he had run over and it was green. And they're, they're in the middle of, I think that was New Mexico. It's like ten times more lush than the than the place right next to it. Absolutely, that, that didn't have the thing driving on it. It was it was just and that, like. But that was all brilliant. he did. He made little pock marks. In the, I couldn't believe that when I looked at that and I went, "That is that is flipping insane." The guy drives a car basically with some special pock mark making, and they weren't big holes. They were about you know the size and diameter of the round of the top of a coffee cup. Yeah, you could literally, <laughs> if you wanted to, you probably could have took a stick. Right, a stick, and if you were bored and had nothing to do for a couple of years, you could have went out there and made holes with sticks and done the same thing. <laughs> Unbelievable. So now are we going to get to the 14 ways plants get rid <clears throat> Now we have the list. I'm going to count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Uh, my list is currently at 16. So we get two two-part bonus. Let's go. All right. First one's Google Culture. We've covered that in one of your previous podcasts. It's nothing more than big... Big chunks of wood covered in soil. And then the wood rots, and then that wood acts as a massive sponge for water and nutrients. And if you build these things six feet tall, it will contain enough water to get you through the summer. So, um, you know, you can, you can do all of it in that one hit. Uh, the next thing is polyculture. So, um, if you have your carrot growing next to an oak tree, and the oak tree has a deep tap root, then um, the oak tree is um, hopefully being able to find all the water that it needs way down deep. And then um, as it transpires water, it's basically like a big water pump. And then it also does a nutrient exchange with the mycelium in the soil, uh, in- including exchange with the carrot. So it takes in carroty goodness while the carrot takes in oaky goodness, and then the carrot's getting water. Um, not, I mean, I don't think they can get an- enough water 
to to do everything that it needs to do that way. Maybe in some instances it can, but the thing is, is that that's one thing that's a big help. It gets it's, some it's right, so it mitigates mitigates some level of need. <laughs> in this case, through transpiration, uh, mitigates some of the need for for water. Well, and it's not through. In, in fact, transpiration is another way of doing it. Transpir, transpiration, and it's going to put like a whole bunch of water just into the air, which will then be returned to the plant through dew. But, but, but just through the polyculture of the uh, root to root exchange through the mycelium, then you're going to get because basically, like when the because uh, because the oak tree is going to exude oak tree goodness. And the carrot plant is going to exude carroty goodness. And, and there can be some direct exchange, but, but it's like ten times more exchange if you've got a really good mycelium in the soil. Um, and so then, which, which happens a lot when, when your soils mature without being tilled. And so, so now that there's like a really awesome exchange, and then the, the medium that's being used to get your oak tree goodness and your carroty goodness, the medium that carries that is water. And, and so now, as the oak tree, I mean, the oak tree's got lots of water, so it exudes lots of water through its roots, through its leaves, through everything, but it's mostly through the roots is what I'm talking about. Gotcha. Let me, let me stop you right there because I have an I told you so moment. See, folks, this is why I've been telling you for two years. Stop turning the soil over. Stop plowing the soil. Stop tilling the soil. There's life down there, and you're screwing it up because once it figures out its little happy place, and it's all happy, and it's growing at its stratified pH level, and it's where it belongs, you come along with a rototiller, and you mess everything up. That's not how the forest works. Go so, on. I just had. I was just like the perfect <laughs> moment for that. So, so on that note, um, I've got two things. One is is that I recently uploaded a video just a few days ago, um, living mulch uh, about living mulches, um, but it's also about till versus no till versus low till, and um, um, uh, basically it's it's Helen Atow, goddess of the soil. Um, uh, you know, so I talked in one of your previous podcasts about the Wheaton Eco Scale and how there's like when you get to level ten, there's only one guy and that's Sepp Holzer, and so at level nine there are ten people and one of those ten people is Helen Atow, and um, and and uh, it sounds like this evening I'll be uh, interviewing her for a podcast or one of my podcasts later. Um, and, and I'm going, and she still does some till once in a while. And, and I believe that there are times when till is good. And, uh, agreed, um, agreed, but it's not, it's not every 15 minutes. Oh, right. No, <laughs> I, I, you know, now my philosophies are different from Helen's, and I kind of think that that's what our podcast is going to be about. It's going to be about like, okay, you know, let's, let's compare our philosophies and compare and contrast, because we both have strong opinions on this. And, um, uh, and, and she's, she's got a very deep science background in this, uh, soil science is her thing. I mean, uh, so, but, uh, at, at the same time, um, uh, I believe that the one time that you might actually work your soil is if there's no organic matter in there. I mean, the soil is like without life. It's, it's not soil. It's dirt. It's dead. It's dead. It's inner freaking sponge matter, which um, is where most of our farms are at right now. And so in which case it's like, okay, now we can till the soil because it's not soil. We're going to till the dirt, you know, but, but tilling soil is a bad idea because then, yeah, you break up all the soil structure and you, you lose all of the tilth. You, you basically one way to make a pond is to till it, you know, and so you go in there, you got your pond, you got, you've, you've dug out your pond bowl. Now go in there and till it. 
And and that'll make it so that it'll seal. You know, that's so important that you said that, because I don't think people get that. What they're, they're doing with their rototiller is they're making a giant pot. Because <laughs> they, they, they are, right? Because they get that rototiller and they drive it through there, and it makes all that nice, loamy-looking, chopped-up dirt. But down where you can't see the bottom of those tillers, all they've done is flat-smashed and compacted the earth about eight inches down. So you got this great, you stick your hand there, look how nice that is. Stick your hand eight inches down, you're going to feel what feels like clay stone. I mean, that's that's exactly what happens when you till, plow, what have you. Well, when we're building a culture bed, we are making masses of organic matter. I mean, basically where that log is, you have 100% organic matter in your soil at that point. Now, for the whole bed, you've got something like 80% organic matter for the whole culture bed that's six feet tall. And um, and now you look at, like, really lame soil. It has less than 1% organic matter. And then when you look at soil that's really good for your standard garden soil, is typically 10% organic matter. And now here's the important point. Every time you till, you lose 30% of your organic matter to the atmosphere. And that's because as organic matter breaks down, breaks down, breaks down, it's like it's like perpetually composting. It gets to such a tiny little molecular bit that that it's it's like on the either on the edge of being a gas or it's like on it's 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 it is a gas um, or it's something that can be carried away by a gas. Correct. And I think the other thing there is like people don't understand, like they do this one time and they get great results the first time because you've done that. And a lot of that that you don't lose initially, you've kind of like supercharged. Like if you feel depressed because you're B12 deficient and I come give you a B12 shot, well, you're happy, Paul, for a while. But as soon as that B12 runs out, you're done. So we need to fix your diet or why you're not absorbing B12, not just keep giving you shots because the shot that we get by tilling that soil, we only get to do that so many times, and then it's gone. Right, right. So there is a big nutrient release. I mean, a lot of the nutrients are kind of locked up and, and stuff like that. And there's, it's, I mean, it's a very sophisticated space in the soil. And, yes, when you go and you break a bunch of that stuff, now you've made a bunch of it released into the atmosphere, and you've made a bunch of it that's more available in the soil. So it was in a it was in a state of decomposition that was like a, a, of a, of a certain size, and then you broke it open, and then some of it went into the atmosphere. But now more of it's available to plants. But at the same time, if no plants are there to take it up, which is the case when you just tilled, then then even more of it's going to get released in the atmosphere until the plant can finally grow enough to get to it. Anyway, it's a it's a boy. This we could spend. In fact, this this topic alone could probably fill five or six books, and that's just with the stuff that is currently known. I imagine that what is not known in this space is probably about 100 times bigger than that. I, I agree, but let's keep going on your list here, because right. we've we, you know, we got to get them all out. <laughs> next next is trees. Uh, you know, uh, having having more trees, so we're, the idea is, like, okay, the list of stuff that's going to make it so that we can replace irrigation with permaculture. Next up is trees. And trees are going to provide a bunch of different stuff. 
And and so in a way, I, my list kind of cheats because I'm going to talk about some like you know the tap rooted stuff. We're going to talk about shade. We're going to talk about a bunch of different things. But basically, trees themselves. And it's like you know what we've got the things that we know about, such as shade. So if we have a little bit of shade, it makes things a little bit a cool, little bit cooler, which helps to enhance getting uh, more morning dew, and it helps us to get uh, um, you know less less stuff getting dried out and taken away. We, we got condensation condensation drip. I mean, in a dry environment, that might be a third of the annual perspiration, just trees, the condensation drip. Trees uh, transpire um, and, and put more moisture into the air. Uh, trees trees do tons and tons and tons of stuff. But basically, it's like a tree, just having trees in your garden, trees in your pasture, trees in your whatever it is that you're doing. Um, uh, trees, 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 trees are a big magic ingredient that do so many things. In fact, um, uh, Masanobu Fukuoka... He, I mean, it's amazing how much stuff he did that was similar to Sepp Holzer. And um, one of the things that he did is he went out and he started doing hugu cultures. Then he came back and said, you know, after a while, I was like, I mean, this is a lot of work. So he, he changed the way he did it, and he would plant catalpas, you know, a leguminous tree. And and then um, uh, when they got to a certain size, he'd kill them. And it's like, there you go. The tree made the hugel culture. It, it put this massive root system down on the ground. Hold on. So basically he would just, what, level chop the catalpa off and leave the trunk in the ground and grow around it? Yeah. Awesome. The root, the and, root and they grow like... They, the root is underground, right? So yeah. It's down there. It's made, made it comes the to bed. Underground. Yeah, and a catalpa, they grow like about like 47 feet a second. I mean, they're... they're <laughs> I, I have a neighbor that didn't believe me. He had one growing between, like, the fence and his, his house, and it's a suburbia. So there's, like, you know, 10 feet there at the most. And uh, it was up behind this little shed he just put in, and he said, I wonder what kind of tree that is. I said, it's a catalpa tree, dude. It's going to be about 25 feet tall in about two years. And if you don't want it there, you better cut it down now. Because it was really a bad place for a tree like that to be. So he doesn't believe me. And so, like, after a year, he's like, well, they always grow faster first year. <laughs> All right, dude. So now he's got this huge bean dropping catalpa, and it's like growing into his shed and moving it literally. And uh, you know, he's gonna have to bring in like a, a guy that knows what they're doing to get that thing out of there. Uh, but yeah, you're. I, I never. So there's another duh. Of course, that would make sense. Soon his house is going to be a treehouse. Exactly. No, seriously, it's really wedged in between the shed and the house, and it's just. It's now actually in contact with the shed. And I told him whether he believes this or not, if you put a stake at the end of where your shed is and you measure it by the end of the summer, it is going to move your shed over. <laughs> and he doesn't believe that either. So some people learn the hard way. You, you should give him that book, Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it wasn't really a beanstalk. Maybe it was a catalpa. That Maybe so. Good. I mean, it's got bean pods on it, you know. <laughs> You're right. Okay, so let's keep going with your list. Okay, mulch. Everybody knows about mulch. You know, I mean, you, you, if you go out there and you you put, um, I mean, my favorite, I, uh, my favorite mulch is going to be hay. I, I think Ruth Stout is uh, it was spot on. Uh, if if you know, in the last in one of your previous podcasts, we talked about how amazing Mel Bartholomew's uh, Square Foot book, Gardening Book is, and I and I've got to say that you know that's got some really great information in it. Um, the next one I think would be, uh, Ruth Stout stuff, but I, you know, and I think she wrote that like in 1920 or something. And it, and I'm amazed that, you know, here we are in the year 2011, and I'm amazed that it's not like, you know, 90% of all people who have a garden don't do it the Ruth Stout way. Um, 
Which in a way is really awesome because then it makes it easier for me to get my hands on uh, um, hay. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, for some of us, it's that, you know, I can't just run down the road here and pick up a few hay bales. It's not real accessible where I'm at. We don't we don't grow a lot of it here. Oh, really? I, I didn't know that. I you know, I mean, not in Dallas. I mean, it's it's just not, you know, and it's not something that I routinely have available to me. Now, you know, when I was growing up in PA, we always used hay because it was... You could, you know, kick kick a car and, and there was a hay bale underneath it. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was everywhere. So, yeah. you know, you may do, I guess, with what you have locally available. At least you try to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So mulch. The key is is mulch. And in, in the permaculture world, we do a lot of chop and drop, which is where, um, you know, you go along and it's like, oh, look at all this stuff I don't want in my garden. Choppy, choppy, chop, and then just leave it there. And now you've got mulch. Correct, correct. And that's why people say, like, look at all those weeds in your garden. Why don't you pull them out? I'm waiting for them to get bigger. So then when I pull them out, they'll have more organic matter. I mean, right. and it, 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 if you have good beds, it's like, well, that's going to be hard to get out of there. You just grab it with two fingers, and it just extracts beautifully. Right. Oh, yeah. Isn't that awesome? It is awesome. Look, there's the root. Boy, that dandelion, it had a root three feet long. I was just going to say, that the dandelions are my favorite, because you can make a wine from dandelion root. It tastes like a dry sherry, and I can either struggle with getting the dandelions out of the lower portion of my lawn where it's all compacted down there, or I can let a couple of them grow in my garden bed until they're nice and big and start just about start to produce those little yellow flowers, and then I just walk over and I just lift them up out of there, and I've got you know ten or so big giant roots to make that dry sherry type of wine with, and it's a crop, and I didn't have to do anything. Except that those little fuzzy things land there and, and start them out. Now, my neighbors are not real happy about my lawn, but I like my dandelions. I make dandelion root wine. I make dandelion blossom wine. And uh, I, you know what? Come to think of it, I've never watered a dandelion in my life. Yeah, no, you don't have to. They've got that awesome taproot. And, and I got a video up on YouTube where it's of Michael Polarski. And he's got, okay, look at these dandelions that grew in my garden. I never planted them. They just showed up. And last year, uh, about this time of year, I went and pulled a bunch up, and I sold them for $900. It's a cash crop. Yeah, I saw that video. That was an awesome video, $900 worth of dandelions. That was that yeah. was the name of the video. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like he says he's going to get at least that much this year. So it's like, <laughs> wow, awesome. I mean, plus the other thing is, is a dandelion, it's an awesome polyculture crop. You leave, leave the dandelions in. Because, you know, because you don't have to water them, and then they, they put water, they share water with other stuff, and they're a nutrient accumulator. They, they're a calcium accumulator. Dandelions, is like if you had a horrible dandelion infestation under your fruit tree, that's like, that's like 20 times better than having grass under your fruit tree. Well, not only that, but then you think about this, Paul. People go out, and they, they do start to catch on to this, you know, open up the earth thing and a little bit of permaculture principles and cover crops. They have a great big dandelion infestation they want to get rid of, and then they go in and they plant daikon radish. Oh, when, daikon radish is right. awesome. They are awesome, but, you know, are we going to try to eliminate the dandelion that's basically doing the same oh, thing? Oh, right, yeah. You see what I'm saying? So it's like... Don't you understand that, like, add the daikon, but leave the dandelions because yeah. they're doing the same thing. It's that deep, that's how, you know, the daikon, of course, they die, and then that, that whole uh, root system dies, and it's a, a beautiful, fast carbon pathway, but dandelions are pretty much doing the same thing on a smaller scale, and they don't require seeding. They just they just do what they do. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that's a big part of permaculture. In fact, 
Um, I get tons of people who come to me and they say, because uh, I get invited to lots of farms to take video and whatever, uh, and I go to farms and gardens all over the place all the time. And then, oh, you should go out to this place. They've got uh, that uh, aqua um, aquaponics system set up. Go check that out. And um, and and then I I say I I you know I'm not really interested in aquaponics because I don't think of it as permaculture. I mean, it's a lot of work. To get that, I mean, you're doing, you're setting up a big artificial environment. You got to feed the fish. You got to do all this stuff. What I think is, is permaculture is aquaculture, where you set up a big pond and then you, you set up systems that are like your trout habitat and your trout food habitat. And then you walk away and you come back in two years and get your trout. As opposed to an aquaponics where it's like you're there, you know, a couple of times a day making sure everything's okay and feeding them and, and stuff like that. So with the dandelions, it's kind of like that. People are going out there and they're doing all this work. And, and it's like this concert. They're married to their garden. And I think that when you do permaculture the right way, then really all you, once you got the system really working well, all you do is you show up and harvest. You don't even plant seeds. And that, that I, I agree with that. Mission. Which, which I think a lot of people, it's a little much for them to get their head wrapped around. So it's better to, if we talk about like the little steps that'll get you like, you know, 20% of the way there. And then once you're 20% of the way there, then we can talk about getting you 40% of the way there. And once you're 40% of the way there, we can talk about, you know, and then eventually maybe people will get to the uh, point where they can understand, oh yeah, I get it. All you do is harvest. <laughs> Correct. And I, you know, there might be little things you do along the way. Like I grow tons of basil. I haven't started a basil plant or a basil seed forever. But, you know, when they're all in seed, I just grab a big handful right off the thing and throw it on the ground, and that kind of helps the process along. But And that kind of helps me get the basil where I want the basil. But if I did nothing, there's going to be basil this year, and it's going to be everywhere. And, and I don't have to and, – and I mean, and this is a suburban area where I've actually held back because I only want to put so much effort into this place. We're leaving next month. We're finally out of here. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I've got – right now, I went out in the garden. I'm not even planning this year because – I want whoever moves in to kind of like have a blank slate. They don't like, I don't like that and not to pain in the ass or whatever, but I've got eggplant. I've got tomatillo. I've got basil. All this stuff's just coming up. The gardens are planting themselves this year. Yeah. Awesome. That's, it's, that's, it's, it's unbelievable. I got like six inches of mulch down to keep everything down and just like sterile looking for when people come view the house and they're like, screw that. I'm coming through the mulch. Here I am. I'm growing. Take it whether you like it or not, and that's that's so awesome. But I've only been doing this here for four years, and and we've gotten to that already. It is possible. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it's so easy. <laughs> All right, moving through the list, we, we've covered mulch, right? Chop and drop. Next on the list is raise humidity for more morning dew. So one great big way that people, I mean, sometimes you go to a place and it's it's the it's the first thing in the morning. And there's really no morning dew. And then you go to a place that's like two miles away, and it's like as you're walking along, your feet and your shoes and your pants are just soaked with within a minute because there's just so much morning dew. And and so, you know, part of it is let's focus on getting more morning dew. And a lot of it is is like bring in water features. Have a little um, have a little pond, um, uh, maybe there's a creek, maybe there's, you know, whatever, but trees bring in more morning dew, uh, shady spots is more morning dew, there's lots of things to have more morning dew. 
So uh, another one is a system uh, keyline, and this is uh, based upon the uh, the book by P. A. Yeomans. And this is this is something that's more for a larger scale kind of uh, property. And it's and you know what? Um, um, first of all, I'm going to try and give a quick explanation of what keyline is. Second of all, I've got a lot of people telling me that it's like uh, uh, my explanation sucks and that the system is far more robust, but that I've also had some people tell me that, no, my explanation is good. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a full book. I mean, there's a lot to it. And so, um, uh, but, and, and finally, the, the thing is, is, is about, about it is that I don't really care for it that much. Uh, it seems to me like it's, a, it's a, a lot of work. You need to do it every year. And while it is effective, I, I don't think the return on investment is that good. Although, boy, there are a lot of people that are in the permaculture world exceptionally passionate about it. I, I just, I, I just think there's better ways. And so basically it goes like this. You've got your land and it's kind of hilly. Let's say you've got a thousand acres and it's kind of hilly. And so, um, uh, usually when the water falls, it goes, it takes the shortest path downhill. And so then you have gullies, and in the gullies, they'll, that's where all the water ends up, is going into the gullies. And, and so then the stuff that's more like the rounded part of your hills, um, uh, that ends up being uh, drier. And, and uh, um, uh, so then the whole idea with a key line system is that you're going to go out there with a special key line plow, which is basically a straight shank with a knob at the bottom, and, it, and, and usually what you'll do is that you'll uh, dig it down about 18 inches and um, uh, you'll kind of map out what the contour lines are on a hillside and then you'll make it so that the downhill path for your plow uh, goes out, kind of goes slowly below the contour lines and will we'll take the water out to the ends of the, the, the mounded hills. Does that make sense? It makes sense. So it's basically a form of contour plowing. Right. So you're going slightly below contour. Got you. In order to be able to get the water, instead of running to the gullies, mm-hmm. you get the water to flow out to the hillside. And and then the, the hillside, whenever you have a slight rain, rather than all that rain going to the gully, it ends up out more towards the hillside. It, it, it ends up, you end up retaining water out on your land longer. Got you. So it's it's like micro swaling in a way. Um, I don't want to say that the swales are level. Yeah. Okay. These are not level. These are not level. These are going slightly downhill away from the gullies. So okay, I'm seeing it backwards. Then so it's not that the plow is um, going back, going away from the ground, and it's forcing the water out underneath. It actually is allowing spillover. Uh, This might be one we need a picture of to understand. Yeah, there's more to it. I mean, there's a lot to it. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating stuff about it. And it is a rich system. It's an amazing system. The book was written in the 50s, I believe, by P.A. Yeomans. Um, and uh, and I've read the book. And um, uh, some people tell me that I did not retain what was offered in the book. Um, uh, but I don't know. I keep getting this, this varied feedback. Some people are saying, no, you're explaining it right. And uh, um, so... But I mean, there is a lot more to it. But I'm, I'm trying to make a quick explanation of of it. Um, this is like the one piece that I think people can understand the best is the idea that you're going to try and get the water. To, I mean, basically, you're trying to get the water to stay on the land longer in a hilled environment. Gotcha. That that's, makes sense. That's what we're trying to do, and it does. And 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 my impression is is that it gives you it buys you like fifteen percent. 
you know, and which could make a big difference between stuff being green and brown. And then, and if you look at a, um, a, a chunk of property that's had this done to it next to a, a similar chunk of property that has not had this done to it, like right next door, then um, you'll see greener, lusher stuff on the key line stuff. And while, while it's getting kind of brown and, and wimpy over at the neighbors. So it, it does work. It's just that it, it doesn't buy you near as much as a lot of this other stuff does. And it requires, you know, doing it every year. Gotcha. And which, which, is, which to me, that's, works. that's not permaculture. That's, that's, uh, maybe a, a, it maybe has a permaculturist result, I guess is the way to put it, because if I have to constantly supply inputs, I don't have sustainability. As soon as I'm gone, the system stops working. Where if I'm really doing it sustainably, I should be able to go away and come back five years later and maybe a whole lot of stuff fell and rotted and didn't get harvested, but other than that, the system should still be functioning. Right. The system should get better and better every year without any inputs. Now, you know, granted, it'll get even better still if you come in there and you do a couple of things here and there. And, and, uh, but, <clears throat> I, you know, yeah, it should be able to get better, um, without you being there. And, and, uh, um, it seems to me like this is something that's a short term gain. Um, I, I, I think it's, 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 it's good to know it and to understand it and, and, you know, have it in your tool belt. But, um, yeah, I, 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 can, I imagine that there could be scenarios where it would be of, of great value. But for the most part, I think I'm going to go more towards, uh, terraces and swales and hugo culture and things of that nature in, in, in general, which, which leads me to the next item, terraces. This is the next item on the list. Um, and, and so this is one that Sepp Holzer does a lot of. And, and of course, we've all seen the pictures of uh, terraces being done in, like, Asia, where, you know, here's this big, steep, crazy steep mountainside, and there's all these terraces where they're, they're raising rice, you know, uh, um, on these terraces. It's just amazing. You know, um, Paul, I want to stop you there because I just thought of something I never thought of before with this, and that is we're teaching, you know, obviously we're teaching children the wrong things in school in a lot of ways. But on this one, I remember learning about down in the Andes people using terraces to grow food. And what we were told as kids was that um, – that they did this because the ground wasn't flat. No mention whatsoever about the advantages of irrigation. It was just basically, it's steep, you can't grow on it, so you flatten it out. And the entire reason it works is because of the water retention. Uh, right. So the thing we're doing is we're retaining water. Um, you know, uh, having, I mean, in fact, uh, um, SEP goes one step further in that he does not make his terraces perfectly level. So he has, he introduces terraces, but they always have a little bit of an up and down, slopey thing kind of going on. And so is he, is he letting, is he sloping them a little bit out so that they allow flow better or is he sloping them back so they're almost doing a swale function? <laughs> That's an awesome question. That is an awesome question. So is, so the thing is, it depends. I'm glad we had this chat. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, it depends on the soil type. I mean, if it's a clay soil and you make the so the slope go into the hillside, then you're going to you're going to make all that clay turn into jello, mm -hmm. and and then it's going to um, move off of your property and visit the neighbors. 
Correct, and I'm also making a big giant, basically a little lake. I'm making a pond there. Well, kind of, yeah, and, and it's going to go. I mean, the thing is, when it goes to visit your neighbors uh, in the middle of the night, <laughs> they they might be upset about that. Correct. If they survive it. Correct. Because uh, I'm creating so, a I'm, I'm creating a landslide waiting to happen. But I guess now, you know, I look uh, at a, if, if I look at my sandy soil. Yeah, I go to, to Arkansas. I've got rock. I've got silica. I've got sand. I would actually, and I'm getting ready to do this. This is why I'm asking. I've got a machine guy that's going to come in and help me do it. I'm going to want to put a little bit of a slightly canned back because I don't have that clay. I have a problem with soil retention. Okay. No, yeah, right. So then you then you want to try and keep any soil from going. Yeah, you want to capture it. So if it's if it's thinking about going downhill, you're gonna you're gonna be standing up and saying no, and you're gonna keep it on on your land. But now I'm gonna I'm gonna add a third dimension in here because because now we're just talking about relative to uphill downhill. Now I'm gonna talk about relative side to side, and and so you might be thinking of making it perfectly level side to side, and I'm gonna say Sepp Holzer doesn't do that. Well, good because I can't do it. It's, it's the environment just really precludes it. Oh, okay. But but do you know why you might? Because he'll he'll make it so that it has either a, a gentle downward. I mean, it, it, it'll go up and down, or maybe just you know huh. just down. Or do you, and and can you uh, tell me why he does that? I really don't know. I mean, because I've always thought along you know the way when you do a swale, you do a dead level swale with a level sill right. for overflow. So why would you do that? Okay, so yeah, a swale is going to be is going to be dead level. You, yes, you're correct. And and um, uh, I don't think Sep does any swales that I can think of. I can't remember any swales. But um, the terraces are going to be kind of like a little wavy. They're going to go, you know, and they'll go up and down and up and down. So now, because he's doing that, you'll have some spots that are going to be kind of rounded at the top or kind of up high. That's going to be a little drier. And then you're going to have stuff that's going to so be a little concave. Let me, let me cheat and jump ahead. It's all about microclimates. I'm creating microclimates here. Um, microclimates, that, that, that's a good word. I was going to use the word edge. Okay. So, yep. so in permaculture, we do a lot of stuff where we think, you know, there's all kinds of edges. We want to make, like, uh, so in this case, we're going to make a water edge and yep. also a soil edge where we, where it comes down to a lower spot, you're going to accumulate more soil there than you did at the higher spot of the terrace. Gotcha. I guess so, the other thing would be that in nature, um, terraces don't form perfectly level. So if we're going to emulate nature, we, we need to emulate nature, not, not um, you know, emulate something that doesn't actually exist. I've never found a perfectly level terrace that, like, was just put there by nature. Um, well, you know, I'll bet you that there could be a few, kind of, and, 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 but only terrace might not be quite the word. Plateau, you know. But, but, but what might happen is, is that, so, for example, you could end up with something that's like a lake or a pond, and eventually it fills in with silt, and then you have a big flat spot. Yep, that could happen. Because it'll, it'll be a swamp for a while, and then eventually it uh, starts to firm up as it gets more and more silt in there certain times of year. And then during the drier part of the year, it'll be a big flat spot. Gotcha. You know, and, and so it's not exactly a terrace. Yeah. But, you know. but it makes sense. But I mean, back to what Seth's doing, you're using the word edge, I'm using the word microclimate, but it is an edge system then because for the permaculture principle, it's all of the abundance happens on edges. Everything that's in surplus right. is on an edge somewhere. So by doing that, that makes perfect sense. So that, that takes my thing I thought was a problem and, and, and actually turns it into a solution. 
Some plants like more water, some plants like less water, you know, and so then you've got all these different places that you're creating, and and then so some plants will grow over there in the wetter spots, and some plants will grow over here in the drier spots, and, and yeah, edge, edge. So now we've got more water in some places than we do in others. So, and that's, and that's one way to replace irrigation. So now your thirstier plants have a spot for them. All right, <clears throat> moving along. Uh, reduce wind. So, of course, you know, when, when you got a lot of wind coming across your soil, it dries it out. And, uh, and so, like, one of the things that Holzer does is that he's got all those hugelkultur beds, and he shapes them in such a way to be against the wind, so that way, at the bottom of the hugelkultur bed, they're, they're rarely experiencing any wind at all. So, less wind. Awesome. Uh, okay. Uh, swales. So this is one that you've brought up several times. And so it's basically a big old ditch that's perfectly level. So most ditches are going to have, you know, a downhill path. They're going to carry water to someplace. A swale is the opposite. A swale is going to be carrying water nowhere. <laughs> and, uh, the idea is, is that as excess of water comes down the hillside, hits a swale, it fills the swale, and then uh, it also captures any soil that might be trying to escape your property, and it's going to um, uh, concentrate the water in that spot. And so then usually it's going to puddle up and last for several weeks and make that area very, very moist. And when combined with the excess soil and silt that, that it's collected, uh, as well as organic matter, you, you, you end up as the swale, the swale is going to slowly fill up with soil and stop being a swale, but then... It's got this big, thick patch of soil. Now you're going to have this strip on your land where things tend to grow a little bit lusher than in other places because it's got more soil, more water, more everything, more more goodness for plants. And back to it, I've created another edge. And you've created another edge. And, I mean, edge comes in a lot of flavors. So, But today, of course, we're talking about you know, edge of edges of water. Um, you can you can make edge of uh, temperature like micro. You know, so when you say microclimate, I usually kind of think of like how to make a spot that's a little bit warmer, and and so that's a that's a you know so or a little bit cooler or a little bit yeah. shaded or a little bit more sunny or I mean there's there's edge on top of edge on top of edge. I use the analogy yeah. when I'm teaching it of when you watch guys fish a lake. You know, watch bass fishermen fish a lake. You don't see them out in the middle of the lake sitting there fishing for bass. They're all along the edges because that's where the abundance is. And even when you do see the guy in the middle of the lake, what you can't see is on his graph there's a big hill or a hump or some structure down there. Or even when they look like they're on open water, there's a great big cloud of bait fish, and they're fishing for the fish on the cloud edge of that. I mean, there's always yeah. an edge wherever there's life. Right. Uh, an edge you don't hear about very often, which I think is a very important edge, is a pH edge. So um, when you have a conifer, the soil around the conifer tends to be very acidic. And so then, you know, as you get further away from the conifer, you experience um, um, a rainbow uh, a spectrum of different pH levels, and so then uh, that's why it's. Even though I, I generally, re, you know, look at a conifer as a kind of weed, the the value that a conifer has in a permaculture system is that you have islands of conifers throughout your property, thereby providing a pH edge that that you you know it's, it's difficult to get in any other way. Absolutely, that makes perfect sense. So where do I grow my blueberries? Well, on that pH edge. You're going to grow them near your conifers. Correct. 
which is why here in Montana, uh, huckleberries, which are uh, very close kin to blueberries, and some blueberry experts claim that they're actually the same, you know. Well, anyway, <clears throat> you'll find your blueberries growing near uh, conifers, or your huckleberries growing near conifers. Okay, uh, next one. Um, uh, less transplanting, more seed starting. I'm, I, did I already talk about this one a little bit? A little bit, a little okay. bit. So, Sepp Holzer does not transplant anything. He, uh, he, he has a greenhouse, but he uses it only for raising worms, for raising earthworms. He doesn't use it for any, any kind of transplanting, any kind of starting, anything, anything like that. So, um, uh, the more you start it from seed, the more robust it's going to be, uh, for, for, uh, you know, and, and the next item is going to, is, is taprooted species of plants and trees and whatnot. And, and you do not get the taproot if you start it from a transplant. It's impossible. It'll stun. Now, now I'm gonna. Now, Helen and I have talked about this many times, and she claims that she's been able to preserve the taproot um, with a special kind of of, of uh, transplant. There's a, there's like a a, a, um, a thing that you start plants in that's like 18 inches long, and and then she's claim she claims that that she has been able to preserve the taproot. But of course, you know the the switch off is is like okay, Alan, were you actually able to like go in and and look, you know, dig down twenty feet, you know, down like you know twenty years later and see the taproot there, <clears throat> and be able to have you know your control right next door where I started this one from seed and be able to do a comparative analysis between the two? And of course, she hasn't been able to do that. But you know, and but a lot of anything that's with roots, really, there's a lot of speculation because it's so difficult to actually go and measure the root stuff later but <clears throat> I'm going to stick to anytime you transplant even if you use Helen's really awesome 18 inch uh, uh, um, you know transplant container I, I think you're still going to lose your transplant I, I, I think you're just still use your lose your tap root I, I think that uh, it's still going to have a transplant shock and it's going to drop that tap root um, and and so starting from seed is is a is a great way to reduce your need for irrigation, um, and and then moving into taprooted species, having taprooted plants mixed into your polyculture is a great way to go and find that water that's down deep that was put there last winter. That you know, here you are in August and you need water. It's going to go find that water, bring it up, and and through polyculture share it with the the other plants as as well as through transpiration. Um, uh, paddock shift grazing. I think we're on to number twelve or so. Um, <clears throat> this is this is an amazing thing. Uh, started uh, uh, years ago um, by Alan Savory's book. Uh, I think it was about maybe 35, 40 years ago. He wrote this book. And, uh, uh, and where he, he, uh, put forth the concept of, of controlling your mob grazing, where, where you graze in an area for maybe a day, maybe a week, and then that area gets, um, like a month of rest. But, and then you bring your animals back and pulse it again. And that by doing this, that people have now experienced five times more growth of, uh, uh, you know the 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 vegetation in that area. Typically, it's grasses and forbs, and arguably, possibly some other species. But um, but but for the most part, now it, there's an excellent magazine out there called the Stockman Grass Farmer Journal, and all the articles in in that magazine assume that you start 
with that system. They just assume that everybody's doing that now. That's like the way to do it. Because, you know, if you think about it, if you're going to raise cattle, um, I mean, uh, and, and if you do it grass fed, I mean, you, you've pretty much eliminated all your feed costs in a way. Um, and, and if you can get five times more, uh, st- uh, feed for them by just how you manage the way that they, you know, go around and eat stuff. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, ka-ching. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and now, uh, from our perspective as permaculturalists, if, if, if you have five times more plant growth, I mean, that's, that's five times more organic matter in the area, five times more shade, five times more all kinds of things. Five times more sponginess, five times more uh, ability to go down deep in the earth and pull water up. I mean, it, it, five times more ability to hold back the water that does show up in the form of rain. It's just, it's just a big plus in reducing irrigation, not, not to mention the fact that you know, you're going to have an animal Go over to whatever the water source is, get a great big old drink, and then wander back over to the dry spot and take a leak. And so, um, does that not also help? And we're, when we're, our topic is how to replace irrigation, I mean, that helps a little. And, and this is also, we're talking, we've got 16 different ways of helping a little bit at a time here and there and here and there. And now, here's one. Once a month, an animal comes in and pisses on it. Absolutely. And, I mean, if they did it every day in the same spot, that's a problem. But in this type of a, a situation, that doesn't occur. Um, <clears throat> right. I mean, maybe one spot out of 100 spots or yep. something, you know. Gotcha. Yeah, so um, plus if, if you're moving the animals through, if you, if you get a month of rest in between, then it's not going to be a problem. You know, you're gonna, you're, you're eliminating the problem. Um, and, you know, granted, you're gonna drop big old cow pie somewhere. There's some species that aren't gonna be able to handle the cow pie, but there are some species that are going, that are going to be able to handle the cow pie. Now you've, you've also just created another edge. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and people wonder why they have, like, like they say you can't do this and produce, you know, 8,000 acres of corn. Well, that's cause you're, it's not the way that, you know, I mean, I, I, I did a big talk in California about two years ago, and I was talking about basically how to construct a food forest to do it multiple layers uh, and things like that. And the guy came up to me, and he had a, a peach and an apricot orchard and said, this won't work on my orchard. And I said, well, you've heard nothing I've said because obviously it won't work without a complete redesign of what you're doing. If you want a 100 trees in perfectly straight lines so that an automatic picking thing can drive down there and you don't want any diversity and you don't want a dandelion, I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. It won't work this way, but that's the point. That's the entire point, you know. And uh, he's like, well, I can't just tear out my, you know, 8,000 acres or whatever of, uh, you know, I don't think it was that much. It was like 80 acres of trees. I said, why don't you start with two acres? Why don't you just take a piece of it and start trying these systems and experimenting with them? Uh, anyway, I didn't want to stop you because we are over time again, as we always seem to do when you're here. Um, but let's keep going because you got paddock shift grazing. The next thing I see on your list is, uh, and folks, don't worry about getting all these written down. I'll put all these things in the show notes. The next one I see is DuPont. So that's a new one for me. I think I know what it is, but explain it to me. Well, I just really, just really quick, Wana, you said, you said orchard. And, and so now I have to. I can't stop myself. I'm powerfully compelled to say, I believe there's no such thing as a permaculture orchard. You know, uh, or, an orchard is another kind of monocrop. And so. I completely agree. You're, you know, if you're, if you put it in an orchard, doom, doom. 
So uh, don't don't do er- food forest. So uh, for example, if you want an apple orchard, but you want it to be permaculture esque, then you're going to do a, a bunch of different trees, and maybe one tree out of ten will be an apple tree. That's but you end up with a huge apple yield that way. You yeah, your apple yield will probably be about one third of if it was nothing but apple trees. On the other hand, um, I you get, are getting um, a ton of other crops too. You're getting absolutely. You're, you're going to end up with more food per acre. Well, that's that's the thing. I always when I have these conversations with people that are doing things in what we'll call a conventional manner is, I no, I can't give you more apples. I can give you more total yield. And you're not dependent on a single or two crops, so that if one year we happen to have something that does come in and smite the apples for a year, you haven't lost the farm, quite literally. You've, you've got other, you know, maybe you've got pecan, maybe you've got, uh, you know, maybe you've got some type of a, a wildlife forage, maybe, and you've got a wildlife yield, or you've got a cattle yield, or, or you know, it, it doesn't, you're right, it doesn't work if we do it the exact same way you've always been doing it, and just stop doing all the things that you do to make it work. But again, that's the point. So I think, you know, usually what you'll do is you'll, if you go from an orchard to a food forest, you're going to increase your total crop yield for that per acre by probably a factor of 10. And at the same time, you're probably going to cut your workload by a factor of 10. And so, you know, to me, the math is pretty simple. But all right, moving on. Duponds. Duponds come in two different flavors. There's one where you just kind of make a little depression in the ground, um, where uh, uh, you know a pond could be, but you don't have any water going in and any water going out, and it's dependent on rain and and whatever else might just happen to find its way to that pond. And and uh, uh, the the advantage is is that um, I mean I wouldn't put fish in there or anything like that, uh, and nor nor would I really be really excited about the idea of having animals drink from that water. But uh, but one of the things you can you'll be raising the general humidity in the area, and then of course you know you've also added edge, you've added a kind of edge, and um, uh, uh, and you might want to put a couple of things in there to eat any kind of mosquitoes. <laughs> a couple a couple goldfish wouldn't be such a bad idea. Sure, absolutely. Um, but there's another kind of dupont that I think is really interesting, and and that is where. Um, uh, it's it's kind of like from uh, the book or even the movie Dune, and and the idea is is that you have inside of a mountain of sorts or inside of you you've carved out a spot, and then as air passes through there, uh, that warm air is carrying a little bit of moisture, and then inside the hillside it's cold, and you'll get condensation, and then the condensation will fill a pond in there, or if it overflows, it could actually you know have a you could you will have created a a really lame uh spring of sorts water will dribble out of that by by converting by taking air out or taking moisture out of the air so that's another kind of of dew pond very very cool um and along those lines brings us to the next item on the list and that is stacked rocks I'm going to stop you there because I know there's a bunch of people going right now. Now, how if I, especially if you're from Texas, right? How am I going to go out there and get a whole bunch of rocks and stack them up in a pile in the middle of this this field, and it's going to make water? This boy's plumb lost his mind. So, so, so explain because I know how it works, but I, I know that that's going to right now. There's someone out there thinking, yeah, that's that's right. You don't make water out of a rock. Explain, <laughs> explain how this works. 
Okay, I, I think, you know, the place, the best place to put a stack of rocks is at the drip line of a tree. So on the edge of the, but, but basically, like, let's say you get this, this stack of rocks and you stack them six feet tall. And let's say they're pretty big rocks, like as big as you can carry. Then, um, yeah, the rocks on the outside are boring, but it's the rocks on the inside that are interesting. And, and what happens is, is that your warm, uh, uh, air that's going to have some moisture in it, is going to hit those rocks on the inside, which are going to be much colder, much cooler, and then that, and then it, you're, you're going to get condensation on those inside rocks, and then the, the condensation is going to drip off into the soil. And so usually, a, a tree can easily take advantage of that extra moisture that's that's coming right there. And um, uh, so yeah, this is this is something you can put in lots of different places throughout your your property, um, and in your rocks. Seb Holzer loves rocks in his stuff, and I, and it's like it's funny because like right where I am in Montana, if I look out my window, I'm looking out on this weed field where the the, the guy does everything conventional. He just went and and dissed his land, and which exposed a whole bunch of rocks. So then he spent days going out there picking up all these rocks, and I was watching him driving around with his tractor and this this big. Uh, and, and like picking up the rocks and everything, uh, and, and he makes big piles. And where the piles are, I'm thinking, now that's where you're going to have your best growth of all kinds of stuff. But of course, that's where he's he's, he's growing his weed crop, which I'm sure he's going to spray at some point. Um, but I think that wherever he's got these rock piles, he should plant trees around them, and then, then the trees, he'll have this magnificent tree crop. Absolutely. Uh, but but Sepp Holzer uses rocks for all kinds of stuff. Rocks rocks are great temperature buffers. Rocks do all kinds of. Well, anyway, all right, we got to finish the list. Yeah. But stacked rocks. That's that. It's going to bring you water where you currently don't have much. Um, edges. We've already talked about edges. That's the next thing on the list. And finally, the last thing on the list is is really obvious. Shade. Some plants do better with less sunlight. So um, uh, I've got uh, another presentation that I've got about, I think it's the, the presentation I have about making the big bucks. It's got a quote from David Bloom, because um, we've got, of course, a whole bunch of threads about how to get by with less water um, in permaculture. And, and David Bloom has this awesome essay that he wrote um, about uh, having two acres a little ways outside of San Francisco and how he fed over 300 people year-round on this 200 acres, and and then he goes into a lot of detail talking about how much sunlight different plants need. Some plants actually will produce more if they have less sunlight, and so that would mean that they get a couple of hours in the morning and a couple of hours in the afternoon, and then they produce more than if they had all day sun. And uh, and so like take advantage of that as well as the fact that when you simply have shade, then you don't give up as much water to the sun. Your your soil doesn't bake as much, and your plants don't bake as much, and and everything's able to hold on to more moisture. The end. Well, it makes perfect sense to me, and I think a lot of people are probably blown away right now, and their minds going a thousand miles an hour, and they're also thinking, well, I can't do all of this. And I mean, I, I'll tell you what, if you're sitting in the middle of suburbia, you're not going to probably have a lot of paddock uh, sectored off grazing livestock. Uh, but a lot of the stuff you've heard, you can integrate into what you're doing, and I think that it's about kind of picking a few things and getting a start, and then starting to look at, well, where could I put a stack of rocks? Where could I create my version of a dew pond? And I think a lot of folks, even on small pieces of land, could do 80% or more of this 
if they wouldn't. Like you said right from the beginning, though, if you do hookah culture, you've, you've skinned the cat a long way just out of the gate just with that. So amazing presentation as always, Paul. So this is this is a big part to talk about hookah culture and, and the fact that there's the, the two important videos on hookah culture out there on YouTube right now. One is where we're showing we're making a hookah culture bad. And and then the other one, which is probably the most important for anybody who thinks that it's a bunch of hooey, is to go and look at it. I got Mark Vandermeer standing next to a place where he laid down a wood three feet deep, only three feet deep, threw some soil on it, and planted some trees in there, including some riparian species trees. So this is water-loving trees, trees that cannot survive without a lot of water. And then I think I filmed them in July... And he hasn't watered it at all that year, and it is huge and lush. And and now this is in Missoula, yep. which is mountain deserts. So we only get 13 yep. inches of rain a year, and here he's standing next to this spot that is just crazy lush, yep. crazy lush in July. And as I look around in that area, everything else looks, you know, like a desert. It, it can't it can't spot. work either because not only is it just hugo culture doing it, he buried spruce. And everybody knows you can't grow nothing around a spruce tree. Right. Uh, but yet he did it anyway because it works. It does. It works. I mean, once it starts to decompose, you know, the, the spruce loses its allelopathic elements. And granted, the spruce is going to continue to make the soil fairly acidic for a while. But the, 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 the video, I believe, is like seven years later. And so by then, the, the spruce is probably, you know, decomposed beyond recognition. Sure, it's all just spongy material. So, man, Paul, this was an awesome show, as always. We definitely want to have you back on for more subjects. I do want to make sure everybody knows how to find out more about you and, and, and stuff like that. So you've got two big websites out there. One is permies.com. That's your forum. I talk about you all the time and send people your way. Let's make sure we do that today. Richsoil.com, that's where your articles are. Uh, and, and, and you've got a podcast out now and, a, and, a, and kind of put together with a blog, and I'm going to see what I can do to help you get that thing uh, tuned up a little bit. But you are on iTunes with your new podcast, and uh, you've got your new YouTube channel. So to make everybody's life easy, including yours, I will put links to all of those things in today's show notes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, man, do uh, you got anything else for me? I mean, we're at an hour and, I don't know, like an hour and two hours or something. Uh, oh, an hour, geez. An hour and 27 minutes, which is long for the show. But, hey, man, that's why we're not on the radio, so I can do stuff like this. But you got anything else you want to add before we uh, wrap up today? I want to say, uh, uh, as of this morning, I just found out that my uh, my lawn care article is now number eight on Google for lawn care, and I think a big part of that has to do with uh, the last time that I was on your show, and uh, I asked people to make that link, and then you gave them the template for that uh, in the show notes, and so I think a bunch of people must have done it, and, Very and cool. so I moved from about number 14 or so up to number eight, and so I want to say thank you. To your listeners who who did that, um, it's 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 that kind of activity that that gives me the gumption to make more articles and more videos. Very very cool. Well, again, I appreciate you coming out today, and I'll I'll, I'll throw up a thing about how to do that again. If you got an, uh, a blog or something, and you haven't done this yet. I mean, Paul just gave us a massive amount of information. Maybe consider uh, throwing him a link to his lawn care article just in one of your posts or something back like that. It'll do a lot to help him out. I'll, also left out, you've got your Facebook page, so I'll make sure we have links to that. Uh, connect, oh, yeah. with, connect with Paul on Facebook. All of these things help content producers reach more people. And the reality is, as Paul said several times today, a lot of the stuff isn't just what we know, it's what we don't know yet. And the only way we're going to find out 
all these additional things we can learn and what we don't know is to get more people than just a few of us doing it. So the more people we get active, and people are going to bifurcate. They're going to go off their own way, and Paul's going to say, don't do this, and somebody's going to do it. And they might not have the exact results they're looking for, but they might find something new. And, you know, it's the old saying, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And uh, I think it's time we get out of this, this, you know, monoculture to me, that's the problem. We've come up with an answer to an incalculable problem. And, uh, Paul, thanks uh, today for kind of opening hearts and minds to a bunch of ways to skin that cat. <laughs> thanks for having me, Jack. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Paul Wheaton, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Shut